Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 through 20, picking up uh, basically where we left off last week. Paul writes to the Ephesians and Paul writes to us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to our reading of his holy word. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us in your word. Help me, Father, to be clear. and Help what is said to be useful so that your people might grow in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, finished on the point of walking wisely because the days are evil, and this week that's where we're going to begin. And that's because we desperately need wisdom in our day, every bit as much as Paul's readers needed wisdom in their day. You see, our situation where we are at is growing more and more similar to the situation of these early believers in the Ephesian church in, say, about 55 or 60 A.D. Namely, a perverse pagan culture, which was marked by sexual license and debauchery, and by growing economic disparity as the rich got richer while the poor got poorer. They had a, a government that didn't deal with issues honestly and effectively and substantively because it was fundamentally a corrupt government and it depended on who you were as to whether you would get justice or not. Uh, in an attempt to keep the population under control, those in power used public funds to distract the people with freebies and other entertainments, uh, notably free bread and free circuses, and their circuses were not like what we think of a circus with clowns and trapeze acts. Their circuses were basically blood fights to the death with gladiators and all kinds of war games and violence and things like that. And as time went on, it became harder and harder to just live in that place as a faithful Christian uh, because people viewed Christianity and Christians negatively. They spread all kinds of rumors about them. Oh, they call each other brother and sister, and yet the husband calls his wife a sister. I, I bet they practice incest. And oh, they're eating the body and blood of somebody in there. I bet they're cannibals. I mean, those kind of things went around, and people believed them. And it's much the same today. You know, there's a, a writer named Aaron Wren who writes uh, mostly on the internet, not usually for print, but. Uh, uh, 
he's worth reading on many things. He's a Christian guy. I've actually corresponded with him a little bit on a couple of his articles. And he's a very thoughtful man. He lives in Indianapolis now at this point. And, and he recently created something of a buzz online for an essay that he wrote actually several years ago. And when I read it several years ago, I thought, this is a good essay. This makes a lot of sense. But it kind of went under the radar for most Christians until it was republished by a, a major Christian journal called First Things. And uh, then it kind of went viral, and everybody's talking about it now. And in that essay, Aaron Wren says that we can kind of divide the last century or so uh, into what he calls three ages or three worlds as regards the way the culture views Christianity, Christians, and the church. And what he says is up to about, say, 1994, it was generally considered positive to be associated in some way with Christianity and with the church. For instance, very few politicians would have not belonged to a church of some sort during this period. And Christianity was broadly viewed as a positive influence in the world and in the culture. And Wren calls this the positive world. Well, in the positive world, you almost didn't need to do evangelism to grow the church because people were wandering in on their own. And then about 1994, he says, uh, things changed a little bit. The culture shifted. And the culture no longer looked at Christianity as something that it automatically felt positively about, but rather it took on a neutral stance. It said, well, okay, we're not really for you, but we're not against you. And we're open to being persuaded. We're open to, we'll, we'll listen to your arguments. We'll listen to what you have to say. We may end up rejecting it, but we'll listen charitably and we're open to being convinced as much as that's humanly possible. We're open to being persuaded that Christian ideas are true. Wren calls this the, the neutral world. We had the positive world up until about 1994, and we had the, the neutral world after 1994. And, and then he says, around about 2016, something changed again. And if you think about it, we felt it. If you were at all paying attention to the sociopolitical sort of environment and the way people were talking, particularly online, where they say things that they wouldn't say to your face. Something changed. There was another shift. And Christianity began to take on a, a negative tone in the minds of the public at large. Christians began to be viewed as the main obstacle to the good of society. Christianity, it was said, is at best an outdated creed. The Bible is a bunch of Bronze Age fairy tales which only stupid people look to and believe. Christianity is racist and sexist and patriarchal and homophobic and transphobic. It's a problem for the way we want to reconstruct society. It's an obstacle. And therefore, Christians must be excluded from positions of status, positions of power, positions of influence. We have to keep them out because they are the problem. They are the obstacle to the good that we think we want to do in this world. This is what Wren calls the negative world, and that's where we exist today. 
Most evangelical Christians have been slow to recognize this change. We're still operating our churches and and selecting our programs and doing evangelism like we're in the neutral world, where if we're just nice enough and persuasive enough, people will listen to us and they'll they'll come our direction, they'll, or they'll at least give us a respectful hearing and and leave with respectful feelings in their in their hearts. That's how we're doing things, but it's it's not where we're at. Increasingly. The world around us hates us, no matter how nice we are. Now, one of the things we saw in the last few years is evangelical churches falling all over themselves to move in the world's direction, basically saying, please don't hate us. Because if you hate us, that threatens our business model and and the, the size of our congregations and our ability to pay the rent or the mortgage or the pastor. And so we've seen evangelical, particularly young evangelicals, moving in the direction of the things the world is demanding, trying to find some congruence with the Bible and their social agenda and saying, look, see, there's some things we have in common. And this is a mistake. We've done it before. And uh, it's going to end in tears. But that's what's happened. And the people that hate us control the institutions of Please turn that down. Thank you. The people that hate us control the institutions of social and political power in our country, and they are gathering strength, and they are biding their time until they can take, they can use that power that's at their disposal to come after us. And in the meantime, our churches are totally unprepared. Our churches are held together by personalities. They're held together by catering to the whims of people who behave as consumers, not disciples, not soldiers in an army. Can you imagine fighting World War II on a I'll do what I feel like basis and if I like you, I'll obey my orders? How long would we have lasted? Well, that's what we're facing as a church, and we are woefully unprepared for it. There are people in this congregation who would lose their job if they said that they believe that the only valid form of marriage is that form instituted by God. One man and one woman till death do us part. And they would lose their job and they would be blackballed, even though Joe Biden and Barack Obama said exactly that in the 2012 presidential race. Are you prepared for that reality? You may think, oh, I'm safely retired. Nothing like that can touch me. Not so. Uh, What if your bank decided that the views that you expressed online were evil and they didn't want you as a customer anymore and they just slammed the door? Uh, It's been threatened. That kind of thing has been threatened. You say, well, I'll go and find another bank. Well, that works until all the banks are doing the same thing. What if your insurance company canceled your life insurance policy because of something you said online? You say, well, that'll never happen. It did. It happened to a baseball star named Kurt Schilling in January of 2021. AIG canceled his life insurance. They said, we don't want you as a customer. We don't like your views that you've expressed. Well, I didn't like the views that he expressed either, but he paid for his life insurance. They don't want him as a customer. Uh, Already gay activists are working on a database of churches that approve of their behavior and churches that don't? What if someone decides 
that your child or your grandchild can't get into the college that they want to get into because you belong to the wrong church? What if um, they decide to boycott and ruin your business because you attend the wrong kind of church? Or what if they blackball you at work or if they fire you? This has happened in the academic world, in the universities. To be a Christian today requires courage, but it also requires wisdom. It requires a huge heaping dose of wisdom. It requires you to be wise, and it requires you to walk wisely. Fortunately, wisdom is the birthright of every single Christian if he or she will only diligently seek it. And God promises that in his word. He promises that in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Here's what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, and he is unstable in all of his ways. In other words, have confidence in God's promises that he said in his word, and ask him for the wisdom that you need to live your life. God has pledged himself in his word that he will give you wisdom if you ask for it and if you don't doubt that he's going to give it to you. And one of the ways that we start getting the wisdom that we need to ask for is by understanding and obeying scriptures like the passage that we're dealing with today. Look carefully then how you walk, Paul says. That's the ESV translation. The the New King James is more literal and harder to understand. The New King James says, see to it that you walked circumspectly. We don't use that word anymore. I have no idea what circumspectly means. Some translations say, see that you walk accurately. And you think, that's kind of weird. How do you walk accurately? I can understand how you shoot accurately, but how do you walk accurately? Well, the, the Greek word that is translated in all those different ways is the Greek word akribos, And it was originally used of the kind of walking that you do when you are ascending a high mountain. The terrain is difficult. If you put your foot down in the wrong place, you might slip and fall and go right over the edge. And the reason that you have to live your life, your Christian life, that carefully, Paul tells us, is because the days are evil. Evil spirits are controlling evil men, leading them to think evil thoughts and do evil things, many of which are aimed at the child of God. Now that may freak you out, but that is the normal Christian situation. That is the normal Christian life. That this world is not your friend and it never was. That it's controlled by the evil one and Satan is doing everything he can to trip you up and mess you up and lead you into sin and diminish your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. That's the normal Christian life. That's the environment you swim in. 
We don't often act like that's true. We act like the world's our friend most of the time, but it's not and it never was. Now, of course, if you are doing what Paul says to do in the passage that we just studied last week, namely that you're not only not taking part in deeds of darkness, but you're exposing them, you're bringing them out into the light simply by your refusal to act in that way and participate with people who are lost, who are walking in darkness, well, then you can see why you would get on someone's bad side pretty quickly. Because if you expose someone who is a doer of shameful things in the darkness simply because you're walking in the light and you're refusing to participate with them, they will make you their personal project, won't they? Just do that at work with your boss and see what happens. They will make you their personal project. They will make your life miserable. Well, so how do we walk wisely given the environment that we're increasingly inhabiting. Well, first of all, Paul says, he gives us a list here. First of all, he says, do not waste time. Do not waste time. The Greek literally says that we should redeem or we should buy back the time. Some have translated it as making the most of every opportunity. And the big idea is that you are walking in the power and in the glory of the gospel, and you want to see the gospel advance in the world and in your own life too, and all of that takes time. It takes energy directed. It takes effort focused, and it takes time. And you really only have three tools at your disposal to make that happen. Uh, Number one is um, a good word. Number two is a righteous deed. And number three is prayer. Those are, your, those are your three offensive weapons to make the most use of this time in the world. A good word, a righteous deed, and prayer. And the Holy Spirit uses those three things to build you up in Christ-likeness and to bring light and life into the world of darkness and death. So use them at every opportunity. Use them. Be diligent to seek an increase for your master with what he has entrusted to your care. And especially with that that is most valuable, time. You know, you and I are in the habit of talking about my time. I know I am. That's the, you can waste my money and I'll put up with it, but don't waste my time. And the older I get, the more I see the end of my life approaching me, the more I realize I have less time, the more I don't want to do things that I used to not mind doing. My wife and I were talking yesterday about the house and the yard work and all that. We've got seven-tenths of an acre, and we have all these ginormous trees that are just dropping the crud on the lawn all the time, and squirrels running around, and all these little boogers eating our garden, and and, and the shingles are fine, but the, the, what do you call it, the shutters are falling apart, and they need to be replaced, and, this, and I'm like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I love the house. I wish I had, like, a guy, you know, like, somebody I could just, I wish I had enough money to pay a guy to come and do all that for me, right? So if any of you is looking for a job and you're cheap, we could talk, all right? But I just, you know, I don't want to work on car. I like working on cars for a while, and I did it all the time. I don't want to work on cars anymore. I've got 
a limited amount of time. And I've got so much to do that is kingdom business that I just don't want to do the other stuff anymore. I, I, I do it because I have to, but I don't do it with a happy heart. I generally don't do a good job. I need to, I need to deal with that and figure out how to deal with that. I, need, I probably need to sell my house and move to a condo. But um, that's not happening for a little while. But time, time is your most precious thing. And you always think you've got more of it than you actually do. You know, it's amazing when you went into hospice and people are told you're going to die and you've got probably this much time left. How often people are surprised as they move through that time and how quickly it's going. You need to use your time. You see, time is not your possession. You talk about my time, that's fine. You can talk about my time. But it's not your time. Every moment, every breath you breathe is a gift from Almighty God who has numbered your heartbeats, who has numbered your days, who has numbered the breaths that you will get in your lungs. And it's precious. That's one of the reasons we keep the Sabbath in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. It's, it's to remind us that it's not our time. None of it. In the same way that the tithe reminds us that it's not our money, none of it, that it's a gift from God. He gives it to us to use for a while. Same, same deal with your time. And God says, I'll let you keep 90% of what you make and ordinarily only ask for a tenth. And God says, I'll give you six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no labor, neither you nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor the alien or stranger within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day and hallowed it as the Sabbath. And God says, my time. And he gives us this gift of the Sabbath to remind ourselves constantly it's all his time. Make careful and wise use of it. Second thing on the wisdom list here. Paul says, seek to understand the will of God. Seek to understand the will of God. The will of God is given to us, obviously, in the scriptures, first and foremost. And we should know them, and we should obey them. The will of God is also expressed in his providences, the circumstances that he brings into our lives. We are to consider them and act in light of them. You know, as we've been, as the elders have been wrestling with um, how to program the church and, and move forward. You know, one of the things that we keep having to remind ourselves is, of is we've tried to do ministry over and over again in this area and God has not blessed it. We've, done, we've made a good faith, diligent effort to find the right people, to do the right things. God has just not blessed it. And so therefore, we want to put that on pause. There may, may be a time when God opens the door again for that, but for right now, he's put it on pause. Where is God working in his providence now? And we identify the places where he's actually doing something and go, okay, let's join him in that. That's something I learned from a guy named Henry Blackaby in a book called Experiencing God, I don't know, 30 years ago. 
It's a good book. You should read it, Experiencing God. And what he basically says is, what you want to do is ask God to open your eyes to where he's already at work, and then join him. I think that's a wise thing to do. So we're looking around going, okay, what is God not blessing in his providence? What is he blessing in his providence? Let's try and program towards that which he is blessing. And we know that people want other things to happen. They also don't necessarily want to cowboy up and help them to happen. So we put those in the icebox for a while. And maybe, maybe in his kindness, God will resurrect those things. Seek to understand the will of God. It's expressed in his word. It's expressed in his providences. It's also expressed in interactive prayer, where we learn to speak to God, and God in various ways speaks back. And then we interact with him regularly in prayer. And in that interaction, by experience, we learn the sound of his voice, so to speak. Um, one commentator put it this way. He said, because the danger is so great, the wickedness so appalling, the opportunity so precious, and because constant watchfulness, earnest effort, and unwavering zeal are so necessary, do not be absurd. On the contrary, understand what is the will of the Lord. Don't depend on your own acumen or judgment. Don't regard the advice of other people as the ultimate touchstone of the truth. Let the will of your Lord, as he has revealed it by means of his own word and example, and by the mouth of his chosen messengers, be your standard and your guide. Now, as I have struggled with this in my own life, and tried to figure out how it is that I hear the voice of the Lord going forward, I'm grateful to Alistair Begg. I'm grateful to him for something that he used as a, an illustration and it's one of many things along these lines that he used for an illustration. This, this one that I'm going to quote to you is, is from a sermon called The Centrality of the Cross, which was preached in 1997. I first encountered it um, in, as part of an audio series called The Pastor's Study, Volume 2. And it concerns a Presbyterian pastor in the Free Church of Scotland um, about 120 years ago named Alexander White. Alexander White died an old man in 1921, but in 1907, German critical scholarship and liberal theology had flooded into Britain's churches, and the old doctrines of the Christian faith were looked down upon, frankly. It was thought that we had grown past those silly superstitions. Now what the people wanted was uplifting talks for nice people who wanted to feel good about themselves, and their situation in life instead of preaching. Instead of the preaching of the Bible, instead of the preaching of the law and the gospel, instead of preaching about sin and the cross. And Alexander White was, for all of his faults, a Bible man. And he continued to preach the word of God and to preach about things that people didn't want to hear about, particularly sin. And his congregation didn't like it. And they began pressuring him. They wanted moral uplift. They wanted the comforts of religion without hearing about sin and the cross of Christ. And if you've ever been in a position like that where everybody is pressuring you like that, you may understand how that can be very disorienting. It can give you vertigo. And Alexander White began to get vertigo. 
And so he had a, a, some summer vacation time where he was instructing some students in a little town in the highlands of Scotland, north of Edinburgh, where his church was. And he began to try and sort this out. And here I quote the biographer. Twice within a week, he disappeared for five hours and on his return reported that he had walked some 17 or 18 miles over beautiful but mountainous roads. It was on one of these walks by the Strom Ferry Road where it overlooks Loch Caron and then round by Plockton that Dr. White found himself wrestling with the question of whether he should not for the remainder of his ministry preach more than he had been wont to do on the gentler and more hopeful aspects of the Christian faith and less on sin and part of its fruits. But as he told his congregation as he returned to Edinburgh a week later, what seemed to me a divine voice spoke with all commanding power in my conscience and said to me as clear as clear could be, no, go on and flinch not. Go back and boldly finish the work that has been given to you to do. Speak out and fear not. Make them at any cost to see themselves in God's holy law as in a mirror. Do that, for no one else will do it. No one else will so risk his life and his reputation as to do it, and you have not much of either left to risk. There's a comforting message from your Lord. Go home and spend what is left of your life in your appointed task of showing my people their sin and their need of my salvation. And White says, I shall never forget the exact spot where that clear command came to me and where I got fresh authority and fresh encouragement to finish my work. It's interesting that several members of his congregation kept diaries and several of them were not in favor of what the Lord told him to do. And they expressed that in their diaries and that found its way into the biography. You can read it on Google Books if you'd like to. But God said no. And you must learn to discern the voice of God for yourself. You must learn to discover God's will for yourself. He, in, he desires to engage you in that way. It's not something you need to be scared of. If you're sincerely seeking God and sincerely want to know what he wants you to do, even if you mess it up, he's kind. He's, gonna, he's, he's not going to... He's not going to squash you. He's not going to let you be led too far astray. He loves you. And he wants you to know him in this way. But you have to learn to discern the voice of God for yourself. Number three on the wisdom list, leave drunkenness. Leave drunkenness. And by implication, all the other ways of life that are intoxicating, that cause you to lose control. Instead, Paul says, become intoxicated with the Holy Spirit who grants you more self-control when you're filled with him than you have when you're filled with wine. Obviously, drunkenness has no place among the people of God. That goes without saying, don't do it. It will wreck your life. It will destroy your witness. But isn't it interesting that Paul contrasts Drunkenness, not with sobriety, 
but with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Well, for the lively Christian, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life is a form of ecstasy. It's a deep, deep pleasure. There's a, a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of peace that comes along with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And in much the same way that alcohol will cause you to do things you wouldn't normally do and behave in ways that you wouldn't normally behave, so will being filled with the Holy Spirit. But instead of wrecking your life and your body, as too much alcohol will undoubtedly do, the Spirit brings joy, and the Spirit brings peace and wholeness to the whole person, and the Spirit makes even a bitter life sweet. Now, there's something important buried in the grammar here. In the Greek, there are two words for fill. One is used, for instance, of filling a cup, where you can put a certain amount of liquid in, and then you have to stop because the cup is full. That is not the word that Paul uses here. The second word is most often used to describe sailing in a ship where the sails of the ship are filled with wind so that the ship leaps forward with all speed. And that's the word that Paul uses here. The sails of this ship are in need of constant filling if the ship is to move. And sometimes the wind will lessen and the sails will grow slack. And in that case, the pilot of the ship will use these little threads that are tied all over the mast and on the sails. They're called tattletales. And they'll show him which way the wind is blowing. And then the pilot aligns the ship with the wind, and the sails are full again, and the ship moves forward. So it is with the filling of the Holy Spirit. He blows in any direction he wants to, just like the wind. And Jesus said that in John 3, 8, didn't he? When he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, he says the Spirit blows wherever he wants to. You don't know where he's coming from. You don't know where he's going. And we still don't. But we want to be filled with him, which means we look at the tattletales. We look at the signs. We say, where, where, which way are you blowing, Holy Spirit? How do I need to set my sails to be filled with you? And the Christian's job is to constantly be seeking to align himself or herself with where the Spirit is headed, and so to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this requires attention, and it requires diligent action, and it requires relentless seeking. And if you're successful in doing that, what will happen? Well, many things will happen, but one of the things that will happen is that your heart will be full of song, and God's truth will just bust out of you. You know why God gave the gift of song? One of the reasons he gave it is because it makes learning and memorization almost effortless and joyful. You know, if you, if you just go on the internet and get a top 10 list of any, any pop period in the 80s, and you read me the titles, I can give you the lyrics to all those songs. If you ask me what I had for lunch yesterday, I can't remember. If you ask me what's the name of the person I was just introduced to, um, well, I can't remember that either. But I can remember all of George Michael's hits or Michael Jackson's hits or the Dream Academy. You know, all those. I can remember them all. Why? Well, that's one of the things song does for us. 
Yeah, I used to be a tutor in something called classical conversations where we were trying to educate our children by the classical method, which is totally different than the modern educational theories. And it relies heavily in the early years on memorization. And it was amazing to me how much those little boogers, uh, fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders, how much they could just stuff into their little heads. But it, almost all of it was stuffed into their heads by a song. And it was very, very effective. They had one song about all of world history. It started with creation and ended at that time with Barack Obama. It was a song, it was called the Timeline Song. You can look it up on YouTube and listen to it. Nine and a half minutes long. All the important events in human history in order. And everybody memorized the Timeline Song, including the parents, because they were in the van while they're driving to school listening to the Timeline Song. And so we all knew it, we all learned it. There were songs about the presidency of the United States in order, there was, I mean, there were songs for everything. We learned John 1 in Latin via song. In principio erat verbum, you know, I still remember it, okay? Why are you laughing at me? Yeah, that's obvious, thank you, Timothy. That's why God gave songs. And when we put truth to song, which is what a hymn is, which is what the Psalms are, we learn that truth and we hide it in our hearts. You know, the, all throughout the letters of Paul, there are these allusions or quotations to what scholars believe are early Christian hymns. We discussed one of those last week in verse 14 of chapter 5. Um, it was the one that said, let this... Uh, to, um, what did it say? Arise, O sleeper, and let the light shine on you. That, that was probably a hymn. The, another very famous one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. That was probably an early Christian hymn, and it made it into the Scripture. And, of course, the early Christians preserved the practice that was started in the synagogue of singing the psalms regularly. Jesus actually sang psalms with his disciples after the Lord's Supper before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And large parts of the church not only have a history of singing the psalms, but continue to sing the psalms today. And up until the middle of the 19th century, most Presbyterian groups only sang the psalms, a cappella without any musical accompaniment. Some of them are still left today. Actually, the headquarters in the seminary of one of those denominations is just up the road from us in Pittsburgh on the north end of Frick Park near downtown Pittsburgh. It's called the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, and they only sing the Psalms in worship, a cappella. And there is no better practice if you want to memorize large swaths of Scripture than to put it to music and to sing it. And Paul says you should sing it to one another. And Paul says you should sing it back to the Lord as an act of personal worship. And it will edify you in your mind and in your spirit, which will lead to a life of thankfulness, says Paul, in the midst of all of your trials and all of your tribulations. Now, let me just close with a, a passage uh, from a biography that I've mentioned before. It's the, or autobiography rather. It's from Brother Yoon's bi uh, autobiography called The Heavenly Man. Brother Yoon, just to remind you, was one of those people that God saved in a rather remarkable way. 
and called in the 70s in China um, to establish the, the, the early house church movement in China during the final years of Mao's reign. And when you read what God did under those conditions and circumstances of terrible oppression and persecution, frankly, it's astonishing. And his autobiography honestly reads like a modern-day book of Acts. And uh, I ordered three copies. They didn't get here in time. They'll be here by 10 o'clock tonight. So I'll have them on the book table uh, by tomorrow. But to, to set the, the stage, Yoon is 16 years old. He's a brand-new convert. And by a miracle wrought by prayer, he has gotten his hands on one of the few Chinese-language Bibles left in the country. And he is just devoured it. He has actually memorized the entire Gospel of Matthew, which is not at all um, unusual over there even today. And this is what he wrote. Every day from morning to late evening, I read the Word of God. When I had to work in the fields, I wrapped my Bible inside of my clothing and took every opportunity to sit down and read. At nighttime, I took my Bible with me to bed and laid it on my chest. In the beginning, reading my Bible wasn't easy because I had only received three years of education. Furthermore, my Bible was in the traditional Chinese script while I had only learned to read the simplified characters. But I found a dictionary and I painstakingly looked up one character at a time as I advanced through the Bible. Finally, I finished reading through the whole Bible. So I started to memorize one chapter per day. After 28 days, I had memorized the whole gospel of Matthew. I quickly read through the other three Gospels before proceeding to the book of Acts and starting to memorize it. One morning at around 9 a.m., I was reading the first chapter of Acts. I started meditating on the verse in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I wasn't sure who the Holy Spirit was. I ran and asked my mother. She couldn't explain. She simply said, I've already told you all that I can remember. Why don't you pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit, just like you prayed for your Bible? My mother was illiterate, and so she had a shallow knowledge of the Bible. She had learned only to recite a few verses she'd heard from other believers. This was a defining moment in my life. I had a desire for God's presence and power and now I realized how important it is to know God's written word. I prayed to the Lord, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I am willing to be your witness. After the prayer, God's spirit of joy fell upon me. A deep revelation of God's love and presence flooded my being. I've never enjoyed singing before. But many new songs of worship flowed from my lips. They were words that I had never learned before. Later, I wrote them down. And these songs are still sung in the Chinese house churches to this day. This remarkable man is still alive. He lives in Germany. I tried to bring him here. Um, and they said he's not traveling much anymore, except for big things. But if he comes to the United States, he said, well, we'll let you know where you can go and see him. You can look him up on the internet, see videos. This remarkable man still walks among us. 
as a testimony to the power of God and the Spirit of God. We need a bunch of brother Yuns. We need a bunch of them. How about you? Will you become a brother Yun? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.